Hey friends, welcome to the Daniel House Book Club. Together we are exploring the eight books every interiors lover should have read according to Architectural Digest. I'm your host, Peter Spaulding, the Chief Creative Officer of Daniel House Club. Uh, and if you don't know, and you're an interior designer but not a club member, you should be. We have free, pro, and pro plus memberships which offer 30, 40, and 50% respectively off over 100 vendors you already know and love. Just the other day, one of our members placed an order with a $100,000 retail value across 22 different vendors. She paid just $50,000 purchasing through Daniel House Club, and instead of having to communicate with 22 sales reps and log into as many websites to track her orders and deliveries, we handle all those painful logistics for her. As a designer myself, I know how challenging it can be to stand in front of a client and promise everything will go wonderfully when there are so many elements of the work that lie beyond your control, like manufacturers' schedules and the reliability of nationwide freight lines. That's why we aim to be your ally at every turn. When things arrive damaged, Daniel House works with you to ensure your clients receive exactly what they anticipated. So if you're tired of tracking packages and hunting down the very best price, head on over to danielhouse.club and become a member today. Okay, if you've been paying any attention at all, you'll notice I took an unannounced two-week hiatus from this podcast. That's because I traveled to High Point, North Carolina for the semi-annual furniture market. It was great to see familiar faces out and about, and even more fun to meet new people who will help us deliver more lines to all of you. This quarter, we are excited to begin offering Thera Coggin and Theodore Alexander quotes to all of our members, among other exciting new additions. So I apologize for leaving you hanging, but I think you'll be pleased with the result. You may remember a couple months back, every episode was focused on color as we read through Joseph Albers' interaction of color together. So I'm sorry to say, buckle up, because here comes another color conversation. Although I think this one's a lot more specifically tailored to interior design. We're in our first of six weeks discussing the designer Mark Hampton's book, Mark Hampton on Decorating. Mark Hampton's was not a name I learned in my education, which focused on architectural history, but it should have been because he was a true scholar who seemed to have an insatiable appetite for learning about a very wide range of historical work. Sadly, Hampton passed away in 1998 at the age of only 58, but he still managed to have an enormous impact on the world of residential interiors in the late years of the 20th century. In fact, when I finally did encounter his work for the first time, it took me a while to get excited about it. You know that scene in The Devil Wears Prada when Meryl Streep is explaining to Anne Hathaway the enormous amount of artistic effort and achievement that went into delivering her belt or sweater or whatever she's wearing to the bargain barrel where she presumably found it? Well, that's the sort of top-down influence Mark Hampton seems to have had over the interiors of my childhood. So, Rendered in finishes so prevalent in my early life, I was a little turned off. But when you look at his work for more than, I'd say, like five seconds, you realize how incredibly studied it is, but not so studied as to overpower the people for whom it was all made. The suburban house he may have influenced 
was wall-to-wall -wall pattern, often with very little architecture. And Hampton did love chintz, that's true, but there was so much more there. In all likelihood, you are familiar with, with his equally well-known and talented daughter, Alexa Hampton, who has carried on his firm. So this is a handbook, sort of, just like the decoration of houses and the house in good taste. Um, all were written for anybody who's setting out to create a house of their own or for somebody. Um, but this one has a very different flavor. Both of those books read like declarations from, I don't know, angels on high. But Hampton invites his reader to dream with him. He doesn't start with the plan of a house or a description of individual rooms or a formula for proportions. He begins with color and the impact different hues have on spaces. We find ourselves transported to the places he's talking about, trying to conjure picture after picture as he spews important references from history. Hampton starts with what he calls the incomparable reds, and a phrase which is probably one of the only that I absolutely find untrue. Everyone loves red. What I have found is that everyone has a feeling about red, which does track with what he says next. That is, perhaps it's the color with the most connotations. It can be nostalgic, as we recall our radio flyer wagons, or it can remind us of a dozen airport lounge and hotel lobby carpets. It can make us think of church or religious ceremony, or maybe the polar opposite of a brothel. Even as I say these potent connotations ring true, a part of me wonders if they are more salient for a generation older than me. I wonder if some of this is falling away to the point where red is just not a color that surfaces as much in the imaginations of millennials and younger generations as it did for Hampton's generation. We didn't all have radio flyers. By the 1990s, even, Amer or even United Airlines Red Carpet Club, now just called United Club, didn't have red carpet. Those who went to church often did so in a gymnasium-like setting where the sermon was given by a pastor wearing sneakers and jeans. The brothel connotation does still seem to ring true, but I think that one might be because so few among us has been to a brothel with red-flocked damask walls like the ones we see cartoonishly portrayed in film. Presumably, for most of us, this was never a regular experience. Or maybe I'm just very naive. My favorite nugget Hampton offers in this whole opening section on color is this. Red is not a good color for the atmosphere of morning. Humans are too fragile when they first wake, and the quality of light is too delicate to work with red. But red is the very best nighttime color. It looks wonderful with deep shadows of the hot setting sun and offers a perfect background for the easy play we find ourselves ready for by the end of the long day. I've not quoted that exactly. I've added a little bit, but um, what I love here is that Hampton is telling us a house needs to accommodate the full range of emotions and experiences a human will face in any given day. And the light quality a particular room receives will have a major impact on what colors will work well in it. I'm in the initial stages of hunting for a new house myself, which means right now that I'm looking at a lot of pictures online, and to the developers and realtors out there, endless white rooms illuminated by blue light of 3000 Kelvin overhead LEDs is 
Far from the end-all be-all you seem to believe it is. Every room looks like a sterile garage, incapable of hosting any of the activities I'd imagine in my daily life. And Hampton communicates that context is everything. We need to consider the context of a space to make it really shine. So, I've suggested that the connotations of red might be less salient for younger generations, but I don't think this really accounts for its decline in popularity since Hampton wrote. Actually, I think his assertion was so well received that vigorous red dining rooms and restaurants became ubiquitous by the end of the 20th century, and new homeowners um, would like to have any color but red now because that has left an icky taste in their mouth. Especially because as the first major DIY phase in my lifetime of the 21st century was in full swing, uh, the preferred red was a deep burgundy which Hampton tells us is very difficult to achieve in opaque paint. Instead, several layers of transparent glaze are required to make a luminous burgundy room. So we all grew up in badly painted, ugly red rooms, and we think, never again, please. Yellow and peach aren't very popular colors today either, possibly for the same reason. But Hampton writes excitedly about their return in his time and their great versatility. My parents renovated their house just five years after this book came out, actually maybe less than that, and their living room was a soft buttery yellow, used as a neutral similar to how he explains the 20th century decorator Eleanor McMillan used it in her New York living room with great success. It wouldn't be a podcast about interior design if we didn't reference Nancy Lancaster's Yellow Room. Hampton uses this as another way to illustrate how yellow can work so well. He calls this room the essence of yellow. It's cheerful on both sunny and gray days and creates a wonderful backdrop for all sorts of new and somewhat faded and decaying things. Finally, he said Billy Baldwin, whose work was always crisp and clean, opted for a more saturated hue with matching curtains and upholstery. The only markedly non-yellow things in this room were the highly polished black and brown floor and the black ink drawing by Matisse hanging on the wall. Especially this last application is less pervasive in the 80s and 90s design work that I remember from childhood, and so I think it does feel a bit fresher than the others. I've mentioned a hundred times that my own living room is bright yellow with espresso brown trim, and I do love it. I'm eager to know if you're experimenting with yellows or peaches in your own work. Um, peach, Hampton tells us, has an equal range as the one he's described for yellow, and works in just about any room, which was definitely true in about 1990, um, but especially is really nice for bedrooms and bathrooms where we're showing our flesh. Um, at every turn, Hampton is referencing great rooms from history as exemplar of the color schemes he's suggesting. I assume most of you have seen the so-called Garden from Hell he references in the red section. This famous room, designed by Billy Baldwin for the 1960s Vogue editor Diana Vreeland, um, is photographed over and over and over again. And the photos convey an overwhelmingly red environment, almost like red velvet cake. But Hampton points out it's actually far from being totally red at all. Two walls are white, and two are made of black, green, and red cotton. 
Um, and I think the point he's trying to make here is that red plays very, very well with other colors um, and other versions of itself. Many different shades of red can hang together successfully in a room without us really even thinking about the fact that it's different shades of red. Um, while I'm back on the red subject, moving, moving a little bit backwards here, I should mention, in stark contrast from the decoration of houses and the house in good taste, Hampton says red makes an excellent color for entry halls. One reason he gives for this is just that we experience, or is just what we experience in the garden from hell. It works well with other colors and provides a strong center from which other palettes can radiate. But he also says if you're a person who does not like, or if your client is a person who does not like to sit surrounded by intense color, painting it in a space you pass through will contrast nicely with the softer rooms adjacent. Finally, and I think most challenging to common perception, he says dark rooms, which entry halls very often are because they're sort of occupying the middle of a floor plan, actually feel more lively painted dark colors than light. If you paint a naturally dark room a light color, it tends to just feel gray all the time. But if you paint it a vibrant color, it has the opportunity to feel warm and inviting and sort of alive. Moving on, anyone who knows me knows green is by far my favorite color. After realizing just last year that most of what I own is olive drab, I have been trying to curb my enthusiasm. But Hampton indicates green is one of the most versatile colors, and I wholeheartedly agree, so now I'm sort of torn. I think this is why I buy so much olive drab clothing to begin with. The only thing it looks bad with is maybe, I don't know, Kelly green? Anyway, um... The section on green is where Hampton really switches into high gear in referencing tens of rooms by great designers from the earlier 20th century. Um, and if this episode feels a little bit jumbled, I should say it's because I actually crashed my computer toggling back and forth between so many wonderful green rooms and lost all of my research and writing, so I've redone it. Uh, if red, yellow, and peach had a range, um, these green rooms feel nothing like one another at all. It's just amazing how different the results you can achieve are when using green as sort of the main driver um, for a palette. So the mid-century decorator Dorothy Draper, he says, loved dark green walls, and hers was a green with a lot of blue in it. Um, and Hampton says we can really credit her for making people comfortable with, with green walls. He talks about rooms in which everything is varied shades of green and how, in this kind of a scheme, no matter what the color, um, objects that have very little decorative value otherwise can gain interest purely by fact of being that color. So a green piece of junk might actually look wonderful in an all-green room. Here, uh, he introduces a room by the designer George Stacy, with whose work I was totally unfamiliar. Um, except that once I started looking up uh, images, uh, his palette felt so much like palettes that I had observed in movies from the 1960s, very glamorous and um, really colorful in a way that sort of silhouetted pieces against um, kind of softer walls, uh, but very vibrant. Um, and Hampton likened uh, Stacy's palette to cooking, saying that Stacy's ingredients were coarse yellow, rich brown, tomato red, and a strong green. Um, and 
of these ingredients, the main one, the one that you could not cook the meal without, was green. Um, if you took that out, the flavor would be gone. Um, I think you sort of need to look at images, so I highly recommend checking out George Stacy's work um, because I think you'll fall in love, and I, I do think you'll understand what he's saying. Uh, then he talks about a room by William Palman, another great whose name I wasn't really familiar with either, but once I started looking, I'm like, I've seen this work again and again and again, and it's and their interiors that I've I've loved, but which really haven't been talked about very much. Um, so his work was very, very popular in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and Hampton describes a room that was by um, Palman that was one of his favorites, um, in which everything was a single color, Wedgwood green. Uh, literally everything that could be a color was Wedgwood green, including the carpet. Um, and then Hampton introduces us to Givenchy's Paris living room, which feels totally different. It's light with white paneled walls and um, gilded frames. It feels very, very French and f filled with all sorts of beautiful antiques uh, of, of varied color, but the predominant color is a really, really dark, beautiful, luscious green. Um, so there's a lot of upholstered pieces in green and then these very, very tall curtains um, uh, that just sort of command the room. And it's an airy room, but um, it's explained that you actually pass through a green velvet vestibule um, to get into the room. So there's a beautiful oscillation between light and dark that I think we don't take enough advantage of in today's design. I think those interstitial spaces um, can really be used to balance a whole plan in a very interesting way and should never not be considered. So apart from learning about the work of so many, the practical thing that I learned here is that tight palettes make a huge impact, as all the rooms he mentioned have green appearing on far more than just the walls. Also, I found it affirming that he said uh, a few times, actually, that blue and white porcelain looks really, really good against green walls, um, because I think blue and green is one of the nicest and maybe one of the most underrated color combinations in interior design. Uh, moving on, I'm, I'm sort of interested to know why green is separated from the next section called What Deep Colors Do. I assume it's because of the range of greens... Um, that are not dark, although the same could probably be said for plenty of the colors that are mentioned in the section on dark rooms and dark colors. Um, but I guess, uh, is blue or brown as versatile as green? I think probably the answer is no. Uh, it's hard to think of a blue room that is really, really warm or a brown one that feels cold, but there are plenty of green rooms that fall easily in both categories. Anyway, Hampton tells us that there are many kinds of dark rooms. There are rich, cozy dark rooms, sleek, dramatic dark rooms, and cool, quiet dark ones, to name a few. He points out that dark-colored rooms done in bad taste can feel too dramatic, or they can feel very gloomy if left sort of incomplete, void of plenty of warm lamps and personal objects. But the opportunity for greatness far outweighs these concerns. 
As he already indicates a little bit with the entry hall, contrary to what people tend to think, dark colors actually make small spaces look bigger. This is true because the shadows make it difficult for our eyes to discern exactly where the space ends. Hampton says uh, this illusion is sort of the most successful in libraries and studies and small hallways. Dark rooms also create a quiet mood that is really very pleasant. And unlike light rooms, they offer a background that works equally for very tidy space and one filled with clutter. In light rooms, unless your clutter is sort of all a uniform color, it tends to stand out as a huge mess. Um, but a dark room sort of absorbs this mess and softens it. Finally, and really not to be underestimated as a great perk, dark rooms look cleaner for longer. Um, probably they're much, much dirtier, but uh, they do mask a bunch of sins. I think my own tendency toward dark rooms is because when I was learning to draw and show spatial dimension on paper, I found it easiest to start with a dark sheet of paper or a sheet that I had totally covered in charcoal and then add light pigment or erase charcoal to sort of dig the space out of the page. Um, there's always sort of a, a cinematic feel to space that has darkness at its edges and it's very easy to um, make feel wonderful. Hampton says dark colors are particularly good for TV screening rooms. And here you might even paint the ceiling as dark as the walls, although you sort of have to be careful of this getting to feel like a nightclub. Um, he talks about how the early 20th century British architect Edwin Lutyens, whose inventive use of the classical language of architecture has known very few equals, um, loved to paint shiny black walls uh, in hallways and some larger rooms um, because it so beautifully emphasized the architectural details that he created. Uh, he ends the section on dark rooms with a very important warning, and it's particularly directed to people who are sort of flat out averse to dark rooms, but it's really pretty clearly for all of us. Um, it's this. One of the most important things to remember about taste is that while we are striving to refine it, we should try at the same time to broaden our viewpoint. Greater appreciation can only enhance our lives, and that enhancement is the point of decoration after all. I think that's... Um, I think that that expansive viewpoint is something that separates people, de designers who uh, can make things that maybe look really beautiful on Instagram, but which actually on inspection are not that interesting and particularly are not very personal. Um, these, th those sorts of spaces are so um, usually of a moment and tend to be filled with kind of things that it's certain that everybody loves, uh, but which maybe don't hold a lot of information about other times or places. Um, this encourages a really, really uh, much deeper approach and one that I think 
is more edifying to the people who will eventually occupy a room. Um, finally, we come to the section called the quality of white. This is dedicated to describing the success of rooms done all in white or what Hampton calls no color. I'm very envious of people who can achieve this really stylish look and I always think I wouldn't be able to curate myself enough. I'd have to ditch my olive green things and otherwise stand out like a sore thumb in my own room. Or at least that's what I'm thinking. That's probably not true. But again, Hampton shares a huge number of great historical rooms with us and describes just how diverse the moods achievable with a no-color palette really are. Surrey Mom's very ahead of its time 1920s London apartment with its big white sofas, an ultra-modern mirror and chrome screen, uh, and an, another sort of, I think, white parchment short screen obscuring a piano, um, was a stark and exciting departure from the soot-covered streets of, of the city. Um, and then he talks about a parchment-clad Parisian room by Jean-Michel Franck, uh, which was probably more influential and even more sophisticated. Uh, and then there was Albert Hadley's own barn in Maine, uh, which he mentions, which was totally relaxed and felt very, very different from the previous two rooms, uh, but was capable of containing a huge range of furnishings from all sorts of eras, um, simply because the palette was restrained to just no color, or almost no color. Um, this was sort of the unifying factor. So this pale luxury, that's what he calls it, um, also has the benefit of framing views out of windows very nicely and sort of creating an opportunity to invite the outdoors in and to become uh, sort of unified with the interiors. Uh, so not unlike dark walls, he also says that white can pronounce architectural details and provide a really bold backdrop for art collections. Um, I think it would be made clear, or should be made clear, that the interiors he's talking about are filled with a range of whites and um, put across a huge variety of different textures and textiles that keep things very interesting, rather than the anemic realtor developer rooms that I mentioned loathfully or loathsomely, whatever the word is, uh, a little bit earlier. He's definitely not encouraging that sort of work. Um, he still, I think, would advocate, you know, there needs to be some consideration about how the light is coming into each room, and that will impact, even if very slightly, the type of white that you're using in one room over another. So anyway, um, that's that's a, sort of a whirlwind, but that concludes our look at Mark Hampton's chapter on color. And next week, we'll start with his chapter called Elements, which includes things like fireplaces and I think doors and, well, we'll see. Um, so I, again, apologize for abandoning you all for two weeks, but um, we're back and I will see you next week. Uh, 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 uh.